The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to episode 51 of Some Assembly Required, your weekly adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week, we are taking a look at Avengers number 47, Magneto Walks the Earth. This issue is written by Roy Thomas, pencils by John Buscema, inks by George Tuska, letters by L.R. Gregory, and it comes to us in December of 1967. Taking a look at our cover, I really like the central image on the cover of Magneto and the Maximovs. I just wish it took up the whole cover. The yellow border and the little tiny Avengers figures around it, in addition to the Avengers heads up in the Marvel Comics group box, just feel excessive. Certainly Wanda and Pietro are not the sole focuses of this issue, but the next couple of issues involving Magneto certainly are heavily reliant on the siblings. So as we open the issue, we find Magneto and Toad on a prison planetoid. Now, Magneto was placed here by the stranger, more or less immediately following the events of X-Men number 18, where Magneto had Angel's parents captive and ended up facing off against Iceman. When the rest of the X-Men join in the fight towards the end of the issue, Professor X calls the stranger, who then pursues Magneto, which is something the stranger has done in the past and the stranger exiles Magneto to this planetoid along with Toad. So as far as Magneto is concerned, we pick up from that part of the X-Men story and we find him here on this planetoid talking about how he will soon escape. And I'm not a real big fan of the way John Buscema draws Magneto in this issue. His face is a little bit too round and Magneto's helmet is open a little bit too far. You know, Magneto's helmet tends to have a much thinner opening in front of his mouth and nose. The eye parts line up pretty closely, but the rest of it doesn't, and it just kind of looks a little bit off. In addition to being a big Avengers fan, I'm also a big X-Men fan, so it, it bugs me a bit that Magneto doesn't look quite right. Now, in contrast to that, I really like the way Basima does Toad. He makes him look like the peon or the toady that he is, and he's even got a little bit of a kind of Igor from Frankenstein look to him. He's not quite a hunchback, but he walks in a similar manner, and his costume is very much that stereotypical hammer horror film assistant. I also love throughout this issue, and really the next couple of issues, all of the crazy adjectives that Magneto uses to describe Toad. On the second page, he refers to him as a sniveling sycophant and a brainless, miserable wretch. Throughout this story arc, really, over the next couple of issues, it really adds a lot to Magneto being a mustache-twirling, scenery-chewing kind of villain. He's very over-the-top, very melodramatic, and his use of language conveys that, and I really appreciate that. Needless to say, though, Magneto is pretty frustrated with being stuck on this planetoid, and so he's working to make his way back, and one of the things that's helping him is that he keeps detecting 
these very strong magnetic rays that are coming from Earth. And as we find out, they are being generated by a man named Dane Whitman. And this is Dane Whitman's first appearance. And I say that because Dane Whitman will very shortly become known as the second Black Knight. Now, if you remember, the first Black Knight, Nathan Garrett, was a member of the Masters of Evil, a founding member, in fact. Well, Mr. Whitman is Nathan Garrett's nephew. And as we find out, Dane Whitman is undertaking a number of experiments using his uncle's research in order to find a way to redeem his uncle's name through finding a use for his uncle's science. As we see in a flashback, the Black Knight, Nathan Garrett, was killed after a fight with Iron Man. What happens is that Iron Man pulls the Black Knight off his winged horse, his Pegasus, and the two of them fall to Earth. Iron Man, in his better armor, falls into a river and survives. And at least at this point, it's implied that Black Knight falls through a tree and dies. As we'll find out in the next issue, Nathan Garrett actually survives, though is mortally wounded and is able to contact his nephew and confess his sins prior to dying, which is what starts Dane Whitman on this path. Now, Dane is assisted in his endeavors by a man named Norris, and I swear I've seen Norris somewhere and I just can't place him. So I'm going to keep an eye out for that. It may just be one of those very stereotypical semi-evil scientist assistants that find their way into comics and cartoons and things like that. But I'm going to see if I can place exactly where I know Norris from, because it really is kind of bugging me. And as I somewhat implied here, Norris is in fact a little bit evil, and we will see that come to light here shortly. Now before that happens though, we need to address something that we have been leading to for quite some time, and that is the departure of Captain America. Unfortunately, I think this issue does quite honestly a very poor job at dealing with Cap's exit. We get a total of four panels in which Cap calls the Avengers together, announces that he's leaving, when his teammates are shocked and push him for answers and quite honestly they object a little bit, Captain America turns around, snaps at them, and storms out the door. Now I understand what Roy Thomas and John Basima are going for. One, they're trying to move the story forward without dwelling on the fact that Cap is leaving the Avengers and leaving costumed heroics in general because they're dealing with it in a different book. They're dealing with it in Tales of Suspense. The other part here is that it does show us the kind of internal torment that's going through Captain America's mind. He doesn't really want to give up costumed heroics, but he feels like it's his only option given the circumstances and for him to be able to pursue the romantic relationship that he wants to. And Captain America even says it's time that Captain America died so that Steve Rogers can live again. You really have to feel for Cap on that one. What I don't like is how abrupt this is. Again, it's only four panels. And the fact that the last thing Cap does before leaving the team for roughly 40 issues as a active member, we'll see him down the road in a little bit as a guest appearance, if you will. But as an active Avenger, he's going to be leaving the book for f about 40 issues. And the last thing he does before he leaves is snap at his teammates, especially someone like Hawkeye, whom he has developed a fairly close rapport with over the last 30 issues. Again, Cap has been leading this team since issue 17 when we introduced the new Avengers, and to be honest, those have been fairly tumultuous times, and Captain America, Hawkeye, Quicksilver, and Scarlet Witch have developed a fairly strong rapport, and it just feels... I don't want to 
to say out of character, but it seems to belittle that camaraderie and that friendship that Cap has developed with his teammates, and that's really unfortunate. In addition to Captain America leaving the Avengers, this is the point at which the team starts to fracture for several issues, and we're going to see a significant shakeup in the team. So Captain America leaves the team, the rest of the Avengers are shaken up, frustrated, confused, and what results is that Hawkeye ends up getting in a fight with Black Widow with Natasha and storms out, which I don't really care for because I don't enjoy seeing a wedge being driven between these two characters that we've seen get so close lately, especially when almost immediately Hawkeye realizes how stupid he's been. We then see Wasp and Goliath leave on a chartered flight to Vegas, and if you will note, we do once again see Janet's chauffeur Charles, who we know is in fact Whirlwind, our villain from last issue, who was not not caught by the Avengers and is laying low at the moment. At any rate, this pair is off to Vegas via a plane that Wasp purchased. It's actually not chartered. And Hercules has decided to return to Mount Olympus. Of these three different events that happen after the departure of Captain America, Hercules is, is the only one I really like. And I actually do quite like it. And the reason behind that is that, to me, it comes off as a reasonable extension of everything that has happened to Hercules since he joined the book. As soon as Hercules joins the book, he is banished by Zeus for a year because he came to Earth without permission. In the interim, Hercules has become an Avenger, which is an event and an honor that Hercules deems as being worthy of his redemption. So he journeys back to Olympus to speak with Zeus in order to get a validation of that redemption. Unfortunately, when Hercules arrives on Olympus, he finds that the city is deserted. Now, first off, although I'm not a fan of beardless Hercules, at least in costume, there is a great panel of a thoroughly distressed Hercules discovering that Olympus is deserted. It's a just spectacular panel close-up of Hercules's face. The other thing I like here is the look of Olympus. If you go look at ancient cities, Rome, Athens, Istanbul, the cities have a very cobbled together look. It's gotten better in modern times, but centuries upon centuries of building with effectively no building code and no guidelines leads to a very haphazard look. And that's exactly what Olympus looks like, only it's a haphazard conglomeration of nice stuff of stuff that's worthy of the gods, statues and buildings and things. If you go look at Rome, and especially if you look into what Rome probably looked like during the Roman Empire era, it was a conglomeration of cobbled together junk and shacks. You know, you'd have a really nice house or a temple or something right next to much less nice looking things. So the way Olympus looks really fits how I envision an ancient city to look, only of a much higher quality. I also really appreciate the fact that Hercules, once he realizes Olympus is deserted, almost collapses on the steps because, again, you know, we've talked about this a lot, but Hercules is a character of passions. So when he finds the city deserted, it hits him on a very emotional level and that takes a toll and he at least momentarily collapses to the steps. Now, we'll rejoin Hercules here in a minute, but for the moment we're going to cut back to Garrett Castle where we find Dane Whitman and Norris trying to finish an experiment and Dane Whitman is very close 
close to a final breakthrough and he needs Norris to come help him. Well, this is the point where we discover that Norris is kind of evil and he hits Dane in the back of the head with some kind of heavy metal object. And Norris wants to take all the credit for himself. He wants to take Whitman's discovery and basically cut him out and take all the credit and whatever financial gains come from it for himself. There are two issues here. First off, Dane Whitman calls Norris over because he needs help controlling the experiment. So if Dane Whitman needed help, chances are that Norris is also going to need help. So he just knocked out the person who could provide that help. I think it would have made more sense to wait a few more minutes, successfully complete the experiment, and then knock out Dane in order to take the credit. Either way, we run into the second problem, and that is the results of the experiment are to have transported Magneto and Toad back to Earth, and Magneto immediately takes over, and when Norris tries to tamper with the machinery and send Magneto back, Magneto throws a giant wrench at Norris. So, really... Things went badly for Norris with a whiplash-inducing speed. I would also like to point out that, once again, that is not how magnetism or magnetic waves work. They don't teleport people. So, although Magneto claims to be the master of magnetism, I don't know that he actually knows what that word means. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Since Magneto is now in control of Garrett Castle, and he has two unconscious prisoners to deal with, he and Toad take them down to the dungeon because, as Toad points out, such a place as this must house a dungeon. And to be fair, Toad's not wrong. There is actually a dungeon where Magneto imprisons Dane and Norris. Now that Magneto has returned, we find out what his plan is, and that is that he would like to reinstitute the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, starting with Wanda and Pietro Maximoff. As part of Magneto talking about why he wants to recruit the pair again, we get a flashback to when Magneto saved Wanda and Pietro from an angry mob. In general, it's a pretty good flashback, and it's a story we've seen before. Vaguely generic, angry Eastern European peasants chase after the twins with various farm implements and torches, and Magneto saves them from said angry mob. Now, this flashback weirdly contrasts with the hometown we saw in issue number 36, which, although it was kind of a quaint, again, somewhat stereotypical Eastern European, vaguely Germanic village, it was still a modern village. In this flashback, which presumably is a few years before issue 36, the townsfolk here are very much, I would say, 16th to 18th century peasants. They're all in, in very traditional, again, Eastern European Germanic kind of garb. Their houses have thatched roofs, things like that. So there's a bit of incongruity here that just bugs me a little bit. Now, what I do find interesting about this whole flashback and discussion is that even though they haven't been acknowledged as his children yet, Magneto has an interesting level of obsession with the Maximoff siblings. Of the members of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, Magneto certainly had probably the warmest feelings toward them. As much as Toad is his sycophant, Magneto really treats Toad very 
poorly. And then even Magneto had issues with Mastermind. But I think he saw a lot of potential in the Maximovs. And although he's still Magneto and he's still that over-the-top villain, he put a lot of time and effort into them that he didn't show the other members of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. I don't know specifically that this is a build-up to the reveal that the Maximovs are his children. I think it is more along the lines of the writers at the time taking that existing material and building upon it. So with our little flashback diversion completed, Magneto calls to the twins and draws them to Garrett Castle, where he immediately attacks them with a robot in really what kind of looks like Roman gladiatorial armor. Basically, it is some amount of armor that it was found around Garrett Castle. Now, while the robot's really cool, I think it would have been even cooler, especially given the coloring of the robot, if it weren't in fact a robot, but it were in fact just metal and Magneto was controlling it kind of puppet-like, almost kind of like a puppet version of a T-1000 where it's all metal, because I think that would have showcased Magneto's powers that much more. And although the robot is certainly dangerous and deadly, the Maximovs make quick work of it with Wanda eventually dropping a giant chandelier on top of it. Now up until this point, the two Avengers don't know that Magneto is the one behind all of this. So after they've destroyed his robot, to Magneto, they have sufficiently proven that they are strong enough to be members of his Brotherhood of Evil Mutants again. And so he reveals himself to them, to which they promptly refuse. Because at this point, they are reformed. They are Avengers. This did not sit very well with Magneto, and he sicks an entire horde of robots in armor on the pair, which Quicksilver single-handedly makes pretty quick work of. He manages to knock out all but two of them really in one fell swoop and then in an extremely comical fashion manages to get the remaining two robots to smash one another with their weapons as he quickly darts out of the way. It's a really cool entertaining moment. So at this point, it is now Magneto versus Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. And unfortunately for the pair, Magneto is able to taunt Quicksilver enough that he has to retort, and in the process slows himself down such that Magneto is able to knock him unconscious, and then Magneto quickly uses a flail and chain to imprison Scarlet Witch, and at the end of our issue, we find a triumphant Magneto and Toad celebrating the fact that they have returned, and they are going to rain destruction upon this world, and that's our issue. As I mentioned before, this is in fact the issue where we see the beginning of the breaking of the Avengers, and eventually we're going to whittle the team down to Goliath, Hawkeye, and Wasp for a while. Obviously, Cap has already gone, which is something we've been leading up to for a couple of issues. The Maximovs storyline is will divert along with Magneto, and Hercules will be leaving the team in a few issues to pursue things with Olympus. Now, while Magneto is not traditionally an Avengers villain, Magneto is up there with Doctor Doom for one of the best Silver Age villains. Magneto and Doom both share that over-the-top, melodramatic, scenery-chewing villainy that is so spectacular in the Silver Age. I mean, Magneto is chewing on scenery like a dog with a rawhide. Everything from his body poses to his dialogue, his facial expressions, everything is dialed to 11, and it is so spectacular, and I love it. And unfortunately, in Avengers, we don't get it all that often. The Fantastic Four have Doctor Doom, and the X-Men have Magneto normally, but the Avengers don't tend to have quite as many 
over-the-top villains like this. And it's a shame because they're so much fun. The last thing going on with this book is the fact that we have a new Inger on this book that I really, really dig. George Tuska does a fantastic job of highlighting the art in such a way that it really pops off the page. He provides enough detail to where the images don't seem underdeveloped, but not so much that it weighs down the art. In particular, I've noticed that he tends to use a much bolder line on the edge of figures, especially when it comes to Magneto. And it really just makes him jump off the page and come alive. And I love it. It is very, very well done. And I am enjoying having him on the book. Remember, you can find us at AvengersAssembly.com, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. If you'd like to be a part of the conversation, send your questions and comments to Andrew at AvengersAssembly.com. Next week, we are going to be taking a look at Avengers number 48, The Black Knight Lives Again. All right, hey. All right, good job, guys. Uh, let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day. Have you ever tried shawarma? There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it.